Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're looking at a very interesting topic. It's one that's fascinated me for many years, and it has to do with practical life principles. Can we make a difference through just simple perspectives, the way we look at things? Can it make a difference in our health, in our social relations, in our success academically if you're in your student years? To help address those questions, I've actually resurrected a book that topped the bestseller lists for actually many months in the late 80s and into the early 90s. The book was entitled, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. The book was written by Robert Fulgham, subtitle, Uncommon Thoughts on Common Things. What we want to look at in this program is, are there simple principles that we often overlook that can make a dramatic difference in our health? I'm going to be sharing insights uh, with you from the perspective of a physician who's been practicing medicine for some 30 years, but also in the studio with me, I've got a very interesting guest, at least interesting to me, someone who's going to give us more of a uh, perspective from the academic world, from the world of college life. Uh, Next to me is Victor DeRose, my second child. Victor, it's great to have you with us in the studio. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Victor, the whole idea of going through some of these principles is to say, are are these really relevant? I mean, Fulgham put forth this thesis some 25 years ago that some of these simple principles that we all learned early in life are still relevant today and would make a big difference in our life. As you read through the book, did that resonate with you? It certainly did. The way I look at it, when I read his thesis, like you said, and his point that these things we learn early in life affect us in the future— it really resonated with me because when I look at the college experience, I'm currently in my, I finished my first year of college, going into my second year, I see that college life is much like high school life, it's much like grade school life in that while there are obviously changes that come with different stages of life, at the same time, there are principles um, for governing an individual's life that hold true throughout your entire life. And those, a lot of those he summed up very well in this book. Well, let's just mention uh, some of the principles that Folga mentioned. Uh, I'll just go through a few of them. Here are principles that he learned in kindergarten that he said if we paid attention to, it would promote our own success and happiness in life. Here's one, share everything. Now, Now, that's a traditional Native American value. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. He's got a number of these points. We'll talk about them as we go through the show. But but I want to jump down to the very last point. I mean, some of these are very succinct. This point is a little bit longer. As he's concluding this list, and I'm, I'm guessing it's probably 15, 20 points here, he says, and then remember the Dick and Jane books and the first word you learned, the biggest word of all, look. How did that strike you? And did you ever have Dick and Jane books? Did we give you those when you were kids? We had something similar. It was, you know, 
C-spot run, C-spot jump, you know, these these type of little storybooks where, yes, you're looking to see what's what's going on for sure. So this thing on the emphasis of observation, and we're speaking about it on a health show today because I think too many people get focused on problems and don't look at the wonder that's all around them. I, I really think we're connecting with a, a Native American value. People that live close to the land often were much more in tune to everything happening around them and the beauty that was surrounding them. One of the articles, the essays, the chapters, however you want to describe it, that uh, Fulgham wrote was about dandelions. Victor, why don't you share just a portion of that, and then we can talk a little bit about what this has to do with looking and observing. Okay, so I'm going to be reading from his section on this, and it says, Now I happen to like dandelions a lot. They cover my yard each spring with fine yellow flowers, with no help from me at all. They mind their business, and I mind mine. Their young leaves make a spicy salad. Their flowers add fine flavor and elegant color to a classic light wine. Toast their roots, grind and brew, and you have a palatable coffee. The tenderest shoots make a tonic tea. The dried, mature leaves are high in iron, vitamins A and C, and make a good laxative. Bees favor dandelions, and their cooperative result is a high-class honey. Now, whether someone listening relates to all of those applications of dandelions, I'll, I'll just say from my standpoint as a physician, years ago I can remember thinking about the dandelion. I was actually practicing in uh, northern Georgia at the time, and I was doing a lot of research on herbal therapies, natural therapies, and I was impressed with just how versatile the dandelion was. It seemed to have all these remedial health-giving properties. One that I don't think he mentioned was it actually has diuretic properties, blood pressure-lowering properties. And I was just saying, this is amazing. It's like the creator has put this plant all over the planet so it's readily accessible. But, of course, in this chapter, he's speaking about there being some contention about his attitude to dandelions and his neighbors. What was that contention all about? Well, the contention is the result that he views the dandelions as a benefit, mm -hmm. um, and the neighbors view the dandelions as a pest, as a weed. And his point is that disdain for the dandelion is stemming from their overabundance, the fact that they are so common that people tend to overlook their value. They're something that is everywhere, and because it's everywhere, it's taken for granted. So here's the first take-home point on today's edition of American Indian Living. From the physician's viewpoint, you'll hear from the college student's viewpoint in just a, a moment. From the physician's viewpoint, I want to challenge you with something. There are things right in your environment that you can be doing, you can be taking advantage of. Instead of bemoaning that you're too far from a health club or you can't afford a health club membership, what physical activity can you do that's right in your backyard? It may not be as glamorous. The neighbors may not think that this, uh, you know, is up to their standards. If you're walking around the neighborhood or if you're uh, out chopping wood, whatever it might be. But the point is there are things close at hand that can be a blessing, that can help you on your journey to health. Victor, is that still relevant in a college dorm? Most certainly. Um, when we think of academia, obviously studying comes to mind. And that is where, at least when I read the dandelion portion of the book, I made the application for me. And it, when it comes to studying as a student, 
there are often these milestones, if you will, in studying, whether that be your midterms, your finals, your big tests, your projects, that people hold in high regard because of their rare occurrence. They happen just once in a while, therefore they're special, you study hard for them. But we often overlook the little things, the little dandelions of academia, which would be your homework assignments, uh, little things that happen every day hmm. that you have to do on a regular basis. These are overlooked because they're so small. Um, but, but for me, I, I found that one of the best ways to prepare for, for big things um, and to be ready for these things is to not overlook the common things. I think of a history class that I took where um, studying the – individual assignments, the homework assignments for each day was what really prepared me for those bigger challenges that people would, would look at and say, this is important. Mm -hmm. But it was that focus on the little things, the common things um, each day, whether that was uh, preparing for you know the day's quiz or something like that. A lot of kids would look over that and say, it's not really that important. It's not a big deal. It's worth so small a percentage of your grade. But I kind of looked at it as each quiz uh, that was my job for the day. Mm -hmm. I wasn't thinking, well, I got the midterm I have to be studying for, but I just take that quiz and do that quiz. Um, and that prepared me for those big challenges in a similar way that someone who looks at little things that are seemingly common or very plentiful. But if you utilize those opportunities, they will um, they will provide great benefit to you. I mean, it's a great point, and it, it relates to our social environment as well. You know, many times in our relationships, we get so focused on the big things that we don't realize a lot of either the joy or the challenge in life comes from how we deal with the little things, isn't it? It's so true. Well, there's another section in uh, Fulgham's book, and again, we're talking about the book, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, really a, a collection of essays and uh, some of them are a bit on the edge, especially as they open up. Remember, this is a book that came out in the 1980s, and uh, presumably some of these essays were written even well before 1989 when this book hit the press. But this one really reflects an attitude that uh, grows out of the Cold War era, and many people may be relating to some of the racial prejudice that's uh, expressed, at least at the beginning of this essay. I'm just going to read the first paragraph, and then, Victor, I'm going to have you see if you can either summarize or maybe read some high points from this very short essay. Fulgham starts this chapter with these words, The Russians are a rotten lot, immoral, aggressive, ruthless, coarse, and generally evil. They are responsible for most of the troubles in this world. They're not like us. So Fulgham starts out with this piece that sounds very much like, oh, strongly racially prejudiced. And many of them, I've got Russian friends. I mean, I kind of uh, Native Americans could either e easily put their name in that paragraph in a different generation and say, this is how we were branded, or maybe how they're even branded today in certain places in the country. But how does this story actually play out? Well, like you said, it kind of starts out a little bit interesting. It, it's surprising, uh, these words that we read. But as he goes on, the author brings to our attention uh, an individual, a soldier in the Russian army. Mm -hmm. uh, he goes, He takes us through a story of how this man uh, ends up actually 
allowing himself to be taken captive um, in a battle because he would not leave the side of his wife who had fallen. I believe she was somehow stationed with him. She says He says in the book that she was there in the village um, and, and she was gunned down and he stayed with her body instead of retreating. And his point was that this man, who is a part of a group who we look at or who some people looked at in this era as being hated or being uh, very immoral or very, uh, they were kind of our enemies, if you will. He was showing how even a person who was associated with that group still displayed values that we would consider very good. He was kind. He was faithful. He was he was committed to that relationship with his wife. Mm-hmm. And he ends the essay by restating the original words by saying, you know, the Russians are a rotten lot, immoral. He goes on through the through the rest of it. And then he says, sure, meaning that they are there are people in all groups, even if we may think they are not like us, maybe we think they are are different from us, yet all individuals in these groups that we often say have they have the potential, they have abilities, they have within them um, good attributes, and there are many good people in these groups that we often associate as, as not being good. I mean, it's an important message. I mean, of course, the whole story of Native American history really on this continent since uh, the Europeans came to this continent is one of racial tension. And many who are listening today, they may be listening from the perspective of having uh, become very successful in an environment that is very multi- multicultural and, and multi-ethnic. I'm thinking of one of my friends who for many years was, uh, was a Native American who very successful in the uh, research arena in a large cosmopolitan urban setting uh, now has uh, you know gotten further uh, advanced in in the field mm-hmm. and and this individual you might say if you met them you'd say yes they're native but they're fully a part of um, mainstream or majority culture at the same time there are other people that feels still very, very disconnected. We're going to come back to this theme because I don't know what you're dealing with as you tune in today, whether you're from a First Nation background, whether you're uh, from a very different background. We're going to be looking at some insights that I believe have a profound impact on your health. We're all part of this common web of humanity, and there's some very encouraging news. I ask you to stay by. We've got a lot more excellent insights, encouraging insights from Robert Fulgham, his book, All I Really Need to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We'll be back with more. Stay tuned. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. My name is Florence A.Q. For lunch today, I had grilled chicken and squash. I am Zuni Indian, and I have the power to prevent diabetes. My name is D. Dakota Denesosi. I turned the TV off and took my nieces and nephews for a walk. We saw two jackrabbits, an eagle, and zero cartoons. I'm from the Dene Nation, and I have the power to prevent diabetes. 
Science has proven that if we lose as little as 10 pounds by walking briskly for 30 minutes, five days a week, and make healthier food choices, we can prevent diabetes. My name is Barbara Akisafuk Curtis. I'm losing weight and being more active. I am Alaskan Inupiaq Eskimo, and I have the power to prevent diabetes. For more information on how to prevent diabetes, talk to your health care provider. For free materials, call the National Diabetes Education Program at 1-800-438-5383 and ask for the power to prevent diabetes. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is Meryl Streep. Over the years, I have played some characters you could call controlling, but the truth is there's so much in life we can't control. But here's something we can colorectal cancer. It affects men and women, and it's the second leading cancer killer in the U.S., which is astounding, considering it's almost entirely preventable. Here's how. Most colon cancers start as polyps, and screening helps find polyps so they can be removed before they even turn into cancer. Screening also finds this cancer early, when treatment works best. For me, screening was simple and quick. It was no big deal, except for the huge sense of relief you feel afterwards. There are several tests that you can choose from. If you're 50 or older, you should talk to your doctor. Decide which one's right for you. Take control. Do everything you can to prevent colon cancer. Screening saves lives. It could really save your life. For more information, call 1-800-CDC-INFO. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose. We're speaking about a very fascinating theme, and that is how simple principles, simple practices can revolutionize our life. Some 25 years ago, that was the thesis of Robert Fulgham when he wrote his book, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, Uncommon Thoughts, on common things. In the studio with me, my son Victor DeRose. He's sharing with us a perspective of a college student on some of these principles. I'm giving you some insights as a physician. And as we're doing that, Victor, one of the things that came to mind in our last segment, we were speaking about some of these racial prejudices. And sometimes these prejudices are given an air of respectability when someone is far away. Uh, in other words, if it's someone across the ocean, we can say bad things about them. They're the enemy. They're the troublemakers in the world. And yet what we see as we as we look through Robert Fulgham's eyes or as we just look at reality, there might be people uh, from a race, from a group of people who've mistreated us, who are very kind. Uh, there may be people from a racial background that has even traumatized us. And I'm thinking some of the uh, trauma in Indian country at the hands of individuals of European background. And yet at the same time, uh, the point I was, I was trying to make in the last segment is that we all know that uh, there are fine people, wonderful people who care about traditional Native values who don't share Native American roots. And so the message is simply, instead of walking around with a chip on our shoulder, labeling people, we need to look at people as individuals. Do you see that as being a valid principle even in the in the college years? Well, for sure, for sure. And I think it harkens back to the title about kindergarten. If we look at children in kindergarten, young children, 
they're not disassociating themselves with other kids on the playground because of their race or because of uh, their ethnicity. At least we would hope not. Um, they don't care about the, the older things. They look at people for who they are. Hmm. And this also goes back to his point of look. Be observant. Look at people for who they are, not as how society or some people might group them. I mean, these are great points. And among his uh, his points, these principles that he learned in kindergarten are things that we touched on, at least a, a few of them. But look at this list. They really cut across racial and ethnic lines. Share everything. Play fair. I mean, it's not only playing fair with people who look like you, right? For sure. Don't hit people. Victor, we talked some before we came and recorded this segment about an area that I'll tell you commonly comes up, especially in the interracial area. We're hearing a lot about it in the news today where certain races feel they're being put down. I'm not minimizing that. But at the same time, a lot of people are saying that even if someone's from my own race, you can't trust them. Most people are no good. They're dishonest. Robert Fulgham uh, took that head on in his book. Why don't you share with us about that? Well, yeah, I'll actually read a little section here talking about how more people can be trusted um, than we often think. He writes, A man named Stephen Brill tested the theory, the theory being uh, how many people are actually trustworthy. In New York City, with taxi cab drivers, Braille posted as a well-to-do foreigner with little knowledge of the English language. He got into several dozen taxis around New York City to see how the drivers would treat him, to see how many of them would cheat him. His friends predicted in advance that many would take advantage of him in some way. One driver out of 37 cheated him. The rest took him directly to his destination and charged him correctly. And several even refused to take him when his destination was only a block or two away. Hmm. So the, the point that he's, he's trying to make with this, with this story here is that a lot of times people think people are out to get them and people can't be trusted. But the truth is a lot more people can be trusted than we might give them credit for. Mm -hmm. We see this in, in college life as well. Students often say, well, maybe the teacher, we can't trust them. They're just uh, doing their job. They're just trying to you know, weed out the, the good from the bad, so to speak. Not, they don't have our best interests in mind. A lot of people might say that. But um, I experienced an incident – where giving people the benefit of the doubt, trusting them, um, actually it really played out and helped the situation a lot by giving people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, to tell us about it. Well, I was taking a class, um, a computer class, um, an online class as part of the – we had some tests and whatnot that we had to go into the classroom to take. At the end of the class, I took the final, and I didn't think I did well on it. It was one of those tests where you come out and you think, wow, that was bad. And I waited to see what grade I got on it. But as the weeks passed, turned into months, actually, I still had not received the grade okay. for the test. And I, I called the teacher. I emailed him a couple of times and asked him about it. And he kind of – he just said, well, I'm busy. I, I can't get it done. It was coming towards the end of the semester. Uh, the class – the next semester. The class – I needed the grade for it by, uh, by, by, by then because if he didn't get it done, I knew he wasn't – he hadn't entered into the grades properly and everything. And so I tried something different. I sent him an email, and I said this. I said, I know we've been having some problems, and I think you're trying to do your best. And maybe it's the system. Maybe it's my problem. Maybe it's the, the system isn't getting the grades incorrectly. 
Maybe it's something that you don't have control over. And I wrote an email that was that conveyed what needed to be said, but did it in a manner that didn't make him feel bad and whatnot. And he replied very shortly after there, thereafter and went through, graded the test himself, and gave me a, a very good grade on it. Um, I almost questioned the grade that I got on it. Um, it was That's how good it was. And so the point is, when you trust people, when you give them the benefit of the doubt, when you give them an opportunity so it doesn't look like they're at fault, it goes a long way. So this is really a theme that has a lot to do with physical, emotional, and social health. The point we're making comes back to where Fulgham is speaking about some of these biases that we have, where we look at certain people, we think they're not trustworthy, they're not going to help us. If we go through life thinking that everyone's going to try to cheat us, especially if they look a certain way or come from a certain background, uh, we're going to make things more difficult for us. Now, having said all that, Victor, I, I want to be very sensitive to the topic because you know, the history of relations between people who come from European backgrounds and how they've dealt with First Nation peoples is not a pretty history. We all know that. And it is right for there to be some level of skepticism when someone comes saying, we're interested in you, we're here to help your tribe, we're outsiders, but we really care about you. They've heard this all before. They've been taken advantage of. How do you deal with that? Because, yes, on one hand, it seems like they're a lot more good people than we sometimes give them credit for, even from certain races or certain backgrounds or looking a certain way. But but how do we not get burned then? I mean, we, we just don't want to blindly trust people who aren't trustworthy, do we? No, we, we certainly don't. And I think it it once again goes back to that, that point of being observant. There's there's two there's two sides. We can we can clump everyone or people of certain races or ethnicities or backgrounds into a, into one group and then you know look at them in a certain way, look down on them. Or we can take everyone um take everyone for their word and trust everyone. And obviously neither of those is a safe choice always. And so it comes back to to looking at the individual to take to observing who they are and testing them as a person, because whether it's the it's the Russian soldier who his cause may not be right, but still he has values and morals that are commendable. Whether it be um, the, the 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 college professor who is normally hard but who has um, mercy in his heart. Mm-hmm. Any of these groups of people who may tend to be a certain way, we have to treat them and learn to trust them through experience. We observe how they act, um, and the only way you can really judge a person's character is by getting to know them um, personally. That's the only way I would be able to look at that. Well, you know, we're speaking about people, our backgrounds, how we deal with one another. And in one of uh, Robert Fulgham's essays, he mentions a very interesting story. It's It's a colorful story about a town called San Saba, down in Texas. He speaks about some of the racial and ethnic tensions that took place in that uh, town. But as the story concludes, he spent actually probably one of the longer chapters of the book speaking about all kinds of what some people might say kind of crazy things that happen in this town. There's goat roping contests. And, you know, he's talking about buying a Coca-Cola for an inexpensive price and 
eating in restaurants there. And as he's uh, closing the book, or that chapter, he says, so why do I tell you anyway? It's just this, that there are places we all come from, deep, rooty, commonplaces that make us who we are. And we disdain them or treat them lightly at our peril. We turn our backs on them at the risk of self-contempt. There's a sense in which we need to go home again and can go home again. Not to recover home, no, but to sanctify memory. So, Victor, what I see Fulgham telling us here is that if we want to understand our own background, the background of other people, we have to, as uh, Native Americans have, have said and other cultures have said, we have to really see th- see things through their own eyes, walk in their own shoes or their own moccasins, if you will. We need to slip away for another break, but we're going to be coming back to themes from the book All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. We'll be back with more applications as far as health and daily living in our next segment. Stay tuned. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. I'm Karen, and two very important people in my life, my husband and my father, have been diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation, or AFib, is a type of irregular heartbeat. People with AFib are five times more likely to have a stroke than people without AFib. Talk with a healthcare professional today about your risk and learn how to manage AFib to prevent a stroke. Visit stroke.org slash AFib to learn more. My name is Mira Batra. I have been in this country 32 years, and this is how I live united. America has always been the land of promise, and in my community, many families have come for a better life. Coming from another culture myself, I know the desire to become part of a community, to feel at home, and to gain the tools for our children and families to succeed. So I advocate for these families with United Way. United Way empowers them to look beyond their histories and to see what opportunities are available. We help them get involved with their kids' schools, network within the community, and when we do, we unite them. We make the community stronger. What I do is something I wish someone had done for me, and I am so grateful I am able to. My name is Meera Batra. I help families see opportunities and succeed. I don't just wear the shirt. I live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Did you know that 63% of homes contain allergens from cockroaches? And that mice spread potent asthma triggers found in 82% of homes? It's true. Common household pests are major offenders on the list of indoor allergens. Learn what you can do to help your family breathe easier. Visit PestWorld.org. A public service message from the National Pest Management Association and the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 1-800-775-4673. 
Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose, we're speaking about themes in a classic book, All I Really Need to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten. Robert Fulgham put that book out over 25 years ago. Victor DeRose, my son, a college student, and I are exploring some of the themes and saying, do these things have relevance to folks in Indian country and beyond? One of the principles we haven't talked about that has direct health implications is this one. It's something that Fulgham said he learned in kindergarten. It's this, take a nap every afternoon. Now, we may say that may not be a value of ours today, but I'll tell you, we are a culture that is not getting enough sleep. This is what the research continues to tell us, and I as a physician could tell you about a lot of the problems related to it, but let's hear from Victor first. Victor, are there kids in college who, from your perspective, are not getting enough sleep? Oh, for sure. For sure. Their sleep is is a big issue in the in the academic setting, especially college. I even struggle to to get enough sleep um, to get those eight hours in each night and they I have friends uh, people on my hall who are up until uh, late hours wee hours of the morning even um, just just fooling around uh, playing video games uh, doing you name it or studying perhaps mm-hmm. people who are heavily burdened with academic load. Um, Yes, there definitely is a need for more sleep. Um, a lot of students face that challenge of lack of sleep. While we're speaking about a learning environment, if you're tuning into American Indian Living today, and mental performance is at a premium for you, whether you're in school, whether you have a job that's very demanding mentally, we know that one of the vital areas for memory is an area of the brain called the hippocampus. This region of the brain is especially susceptible to stress, and lack of sleep. So if you want to encode memories, if you want to be able to recall things, to learn them, be able to recall them days or weeks later, you've got to get enough sleep. We need to sleep, the researchers tell us, in order to consolidate memories. Now, Victor, I don't know if you could speak to this either from your own experience or from other students, but it's been observed that some students might be able to read and study something stay up all night maybe studying, take a test, perhaps even do well on it. But because of that sleep deprivation, they may not really retain the information very well. Any firsthand insight into that or not? Some, not exactly what you're talking about. Let me, let me share what I mean by that. I have personally seen the advantage of sleeping on something, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, studying beforehand, getting adequate sleep, and the added recall you have after that. Mm-hmm. There have been times, uh, like you were saying, I was studying for a, a test in a, in a business class. It was in the afternoon. I hadn't studied much. I'd been going through the, the school year preparing you know, as I went along, but I hadn't taken a lot of time to study for it. And the day of the test, I, in the morning, I was free. I put a significant amount of time studying for it. Did well on the test. Um, but a few days later, when I was studying for the final, because it was just right, it was a section test and a final, I did notice that I... The stuff I'd studied in the day and, and taken the test on it, it wasn't as consolidated as when I'd studied for something and slept on it. Hmm. So I've noticed that for myself some, mm-hmm. that sleep does play a role in, in what you recall. And just uh, from the medical standpoint, we're trying to give practical principles. It may not be a nap every na- afternoon, but it it may be just making more of a point of getting sleep. If you get a nap in the afternoon, actually, uh, I think... When I was in kindergarten, the nap was in the morning. 
And by the way, that actually seems to be less disruptive to sleep at night if you get that rest in the morning rather than getting it later in the day. But that's beside the point. What we find in the medical community, less sleep, greater risk of heart disease, tend to have higher blood pressure, lack of sleep also can worsen diabetes. That's right. So if you're cutting yourself short on sleep, your blood sugar numbers will tend to be worse. Well, Victor, you've been looking at this book through a college student's perspective. There's a very interesting chapter that, again, ties in health themes and social themes. It's a chapter where Fulgham is talking about the game of hide-and-seek. Why don't you summarize a little bit about what he highlighted from that uh, age-old childhood game? You're right, you're right. The author goes through and looks at the game of hide-and-seek, and he basically brings out that the point of the game is being found. He talks about how he's, as he's writing, there's a child, the neighborhood kids are in a game of hide-and-seek, and there's one who's hiding under his, his windowsill and hasn't been found for a long time, and the other kids are about to give up on him. And he goes on to tell about the arguments that ensue when one kid hides really well and can't be found. But he draws the application um, from that into the social world, in that a lot of people are hiding, if you will, from interactions with other people. And you see this this is so true in, in academia. Um, and, and, and right before I get into that, I'll go back to what he, he gives an example of a man who had cancer. And let me, let me read to you. Would that be okay? Sure. It, it's, he says, a man I know found out last year that he had terminal cancer. He was a doctor. He was a physician. And he knew about dying. He didn't want to make his family and friends suffer through that with him. So he kept his secret and died. Everybody said how brave he was to bear his suffering in silence and not to tell everybody, and so on and so forth. But privately, his family and friends said how angry they had been that he didn't that he didn't share with them, that he didn't trust their strength with this information. And it hurt that he didn't say goodbye. Now, I haven't experienced something to that magnitude, mm-hmm. but I have seen m- many examples of people who are hiding. Um, a th- I think of of Thomas. He was a classmate of mine uh, last semester who I first interacted with him outside of class at a meal one time. He was sitting by himself, and I decided I'll go and have a conversation with him. He wasn't very outgoing. He didn't have very many friends, but we struck up a conversation. I didn't think we'd, anything would come of it. But after as time went on, we continued to talk more and more, and to this day, I can consider him a good friend, huh. and we have been able to, to make a good connection. And what what the point of the the hide and seek was is that that the game is no fun unless you get found. Hmm. You know, I mean, I'm sure you played hide and seek, and I mean, there is certain sense of satisfaction that you hid so well you couldn't get found. But there comes a point when it just gets boring hiding there. And a lot of people think they might be protecting themselves or sheltering themselves by being alone because they can't be hurt. But at the same time, it's lonely. Um, and in a in a college. Uh, Life, especially it's true, there are people, many individuals who are lonely, who are hiding, if you will. Um, And and you could be one of those individuals. I could be one of those individuals. And so his point is come out of hiding, whether that be uh, associating with other people who are in a similar position, whether that be seeking people who out who are, you know, quiet and interacting with them. The point is that life is too short to live it alone. Um, And so 
make inroads, build friendships, build relationships with people where you wherever you can. And these are huge points. Today in the public health community, we know that a real powerful factor in how healthy we are, how well we do in the face of disease, is how socially connected we are. And I think as I'm, Victor, thinking about our target audience, those who tune in faithfully to this show, many, of course, from Native American backgrounds, a lot of our listeners are listening in urban areas. They have those roots. Maybe even in their recent past, they perhaps were living on a reservation, living close to many people from a common background, family, if you will. They may find themselves in a big city. They may be on a college campus, away from home. I know this is a challenging time for many First Nation students. Here's the point. What we need to do is we need to find ways to connect with other people. That brings enrichment to our lives. And just like your story, I appreciate the story about Thomas. I, and I, I know that's not his real name. I appreciate you changing the names and, and these illustrations for confidentiality. But I think it's a great illustration, Victor, because there's a lot of lonely people out there. And to me, it's a tragedy because there's so many lonely people. Why can't just two of them, at least, or three of them get together, right? No, you'd, you'd think so. And, and talking about this, I kind of – it brings to mind a, a story of another friend of mine. We'll call him John. Now, that's not his name, as, as you mentioned. Um, he's actually Japanese. Okay. And when he came to school, he's, he's studying there uh, in college with myself. Um, and other students, he is one who would have that excuse to say, listen, I'm not from my home country. Mm -hmm. I don't have these things in common with other people. But the truth of the matter is the world is fast becoming much more open to originality, to uniqueness. Um, if you just are willing to share your history, your, your insights into life, people are willing to listen. I think of John, You know, he, he's done stuff in class, done speeches even about traditional values from his culture, people find it fascinating. He's made lots of friends, made inroads into a into a completely foreign society, if you will. He wasn't raised here in the United States, but yet the point is people can make social inroads wherever they are. Whatever their background is, uh, we know, like we said earlier, um, our homes, our places of origin do help make us who we are. But we don't stay that person. We, we take that with us, and we change. We grow, and we bring that to the table wherever we are, whether that's in college, whether that is in, in high school, whether that is in your job or your community. And one really interesting thing that's happened in the last 25 years, when Fogum wrote this book, at least a lot of my friends in Indian country, uh, I think there was an era, even still then, where many felt they could not be open about their background. If they had Native roots, that was something you didn't share. You kept that quiet. But I think more and more in Indian country, people are celebrating their background. They're realizing, this is who I am. They're sharing it. And although not everyone may respond warmly to that sharing, that disclosure, I think uh, we need to realize when it comes to physical, social, emotional health, don't disown your roots. Don't try to be someone that you're not. Don't just try to blend in with the majority culture. Actually celebrate how you're different. By the way, we use that term sometimes, Victor, the majority culture. None of us are really part of the, quote, majority culture. We're all a minority in some sense of the word, aren't we? More or less, I would agree with you, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, whether it's because we grew up in a rural area or an urban area that had a, a tough neighborhood or a neighborhood that wasn't tough, I mean, there's something that makes us unique where we'll be able to relate better to some people and some people will be able to relate better to us. Well, one of the other topics in this book that really struck me, Robert Fulgham is speaking about these simple values, these practical things where we connect with other people. One of the things he mentions is, uh, well, and we could we could go into this uh, from many different perspectives, but let me just read this point from his kindergarten lessons. When you go out into the world, watch out for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. We've been talking a lot about that, haven't we, in the social realm? We have. But there's a story that really connects this uh, in a unique way. It has to do with a barber. In fact, uh, Robert Fulgham's barber. We're going to come back to that. And uh, some other fascinating insights, I think, that actually have a bearing on our whole person health. We're revisiting a book written some 25 years ago, a book called All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten by Robert Fulgham. Victor DeRose and I are staying by for a final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. I encourage you to stay tuned. Some fascinating insights as we close out the show in our next segment. Don't go away. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. What I say, you already know, but you don't believe. You won't accept, you don't conceive. When you're inside your car, you feel safest of all. Are you safe? Are you? Two tons of sheet metal in your hands. Two tons don't run on autopilot. You have a mission. It's no collision. Hold the phone. Don't text. You're angling to be next. Oh, you've done it before. What's the harm? Just this once, there's no alarm. Got your hands on the wheel? No big deal. Brothers and sisters, you won't see it coming. You're off the road. Your life explodes. It's not worth it. Don't do it. You only think there's nothing to it. Put it down, hang up, pay attention to highway action. Behind the wheel, there is no such thing as a small distraction. Join the conversation at DecideToDrive.org, a public service message from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, who would rather help keep your bones strong than put them back together. We are here to say a word about cancer. When you talk to someone who has been diagnosed with cancer, be positive. Be supportive. That's it. Stop right there. Don't start telling them about your Uncle Vern. Or the next-door neighbor. Don't be grim. Try not to disappear, either. Don't cross to the other side of the street. Don't stop calling. Don't cry. Don't ever say, you're living my worst nightmare. You know who you are. Here's the important part. Be positive. Be positive. Se positivo. Say these words. You will do great. Keep calling. Check in. Be a friend. Or be a new friend. Be a supportive. Positive friend. Smile. Try not to be afraid. Or act afraid. Fear is not useful. Be a funny, hopeful human being. If you come across cancer, let it transform you into your most positive self. And inspire. Urge. Fortify. Rally. Encourage someone to do great. This message brought to you by Cancer Survivors.
For more information, to hear stories or share your own, visit DoGreatCampaign.com. Do great. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living, our final segment of today's show. We're suggesting that by reconnecting with simple principles that we all know, we can improve our sense of well-being and our physical health. We're revisiting a book written some 25 years ago, Robert Fulgham's All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Victor DeRose has been uh, with me, my son, sharing insights from his college years. And we're embarking on another story here. At this point uh, in the book, uh, I'm on page 78. Robert there shares a story about how he calls to make his usual appointment with his barber and what did he find had happened, Victor? Well, he found out that his barber was no longer in the haircutting business. He had actually left that line of work to do building maintenance. Wow. And and this guy had been his barber from, as you read through this uh, essay, for well over a decade, it seems. Yes, they had they had been in that relationship of, you know, cutting hair, uh, you know, seeing each other once a month or so for, for, like you said, over 10 years. And Robert made a point in his book that they had no other contact. The only place he saw this guy was in the barbershop. How did he relate to the fact uh, that this guy was no longer going to be cutting his hair? Well, he, he, he says um, that he he didn't realize how big of a part he played in his life until he was gone. Mm. Um, he, he says, without realizing it, there's a little quote from him, without realizing it, we fill important places in each other's lives, whether it's the minister and the congregation or the guy at the grocery store or the mechanic at the local garage or the family doctor, uh, teachers, neighbors, coworkers. He, basically, his point is we're connected as, as, as people mm-hmm. um, in, our, in our relationships, and we often don't realize the impact people have on our lives, and actually, more importantly, the impact we have on other people's lives. Mm. For him, he didn't realize that impact that his barber had on him until that relationship no longer existed, and that's when it really came as a shock, and he realized, wow, this guy, we we had something. Um, I haven't experienced something just like that, but something similar when I was reflecting on it, is there anyone in my life who is like that when I read it? And I think of a um, woman named Lisa. Um, she, uh, she works at the school that I, that I attend in the cafeteria. Um, she stands at the, at the front of the door, um, regulating the, the traffic of students coming in and whatnot. But she has taken it upon herself to memorize everyone's names. Um, and there are probably well over 3,000 people that visit that, um, cafeteria every day. And for the most part, she has all those names memorized. Wow. Um, and that's the thing. I only see her there, mm-hmm. and yet we have a little conversation. We say something. She says hi, and it's meaningful. And I'm thinking about that. There are people that are like that for me. Mm. I am like that to other people. And we often don't realize that we say, what good are we doing? You know, Who are we helping? Um, but simply by being friendly, by living our lives, uh, by these simple principles like we learned in when we were young you know just being kind just uh, treating people nicely saying hi you know not shoving or hitting or things like this right you know we are in a certain sense filling a role in someone's life even if we don't realize it now, this is powerful if, if you're listening to today's show and you're saying 
boy, I'm, I'm struggling with stuff. I don't think I have much value. You will be missed if you're not there at that post of duty, if you're not there at that tribal gathering. People are going to miss you. You are of importance. And by the way, Victor, from a mental health standpoint, this is just huge because if you don't have a sense of meaning and purpose, this actually does really undermine your physical, emotional, and mental health. Let's uh, segue from that to another interesting discussion that Robert has. This is about midway in the book, uh, page 112. He's uh, speaking about a phone call. Among other things, Robert at the time was a Unitarian minister. He'd also been an art teacher. I think we mentioned he'd worked as a salesman for IBM, a very diverse background. But he shares how a, a woman calls him on the phone. And she says to him, well, you don't ever get depressed, do you? And he says, listen, I get lows. It takes extension ladders to get out of. She says, what do you do? I mean, what do you do? What did Fulgham tell this woman he did when he was feeling depressed? Well, for for Fulgham, his therapy was Beethoven, as in the classical music composer. He would take out those pair of headphones get him down on his head snugly, lay down on the floor, and just listen to those symphonies. Um, He specifically mentioned the Ninth Symphony, uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. He found peace, he found a recreation, and he found a joy in listening to that music that was able to um, relieve his stress. He talks about how, he makes a little parallel about how Beethoven had a a tough life in his struggle, but yet produced something that is so meaningful to him as an individual. Yeah, what was interesting is part of what I heard him saying in that chapter is Beethoven wrote this magnificent symphony that is inspiring me when he was deaf. I mean, the guy couldn't even hear, and here he's writing this music out. I mean, how could I be down? How could I get discouraged? I can still hear. It's almost picking up on a theme that I saw occurring several times in the book, and that is When we're tempted to focus on problems, there's all kinds of good things happening around us. What about a college student? As you interact with other students, as you deal with some of the challenges in academia, do you find find that uh, these themes resonate with with kids? Are they dealing with depression and and difficult times in the academic arena today? Certainly, uh, without a doubt. There's a lot of depression. There's a lot of... I mean, college is a tough place. Hmm. There is a lot of a lot of different factors that weigh on the mind, whether that be grades, um, your social relationships, financial obligations, and people who, in my experience, and what I've and what I've read and, and studied, people who learn to cope with stress have have something in common, and that is they find things to do. They get them into a schedule, something where they can relax. Hmm. For some people, like for our author, that was classical music. For me, it's exercise. Okay. I started out really pretty much right when I got to the to the university there with a with a rigorous exercise program in the morning. And pretty much every morning, except on some of the weekends, I'll, I'll be up early um, for an hour or so in the gym uh, doing some running or, or weightlifting or something like that, getting the blood flowing. It is work, but it's a rest for the mind. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed on days that I skip that, um, there are – you, you don't feel as as revitalized. Um, that's probably speaking 
not just to exercise, the benefits of exercise, but also to the benefits of having a routine, having something that you can use to lower your stress, to cope with the challenges of your life. And physical fitness, I mean, is such a powerful thing. And I know throughout Indian country, physical activity has been esteemed. There's there's whole tribes where part of the ethic and their culture from antiquity was running. I mean, some tribes uh, just had that ethic. Uh, others very much uh, tied to the land in their part of the country, maybe close to a body of water mm-hmm. and doing water activities, uh, whether it was something that was designed to help sustain their their livelihood, like fishing, something of that nature, or whether it was transportation, maybe it was canoeing, whatever it was, some of these things, swimming, are very much part and parcel of things throughout Indian country. But the other piece of this equation is a lot of times the things that get us down, the things that get us depressed are we focused on these so-called big things? I mean, you mentioned it earlier in our program, Victor. People are so focused on the midterm exam or the final paper or the final mm-hmm. exam week, whatever it might be. It's true in life, too. There's these big, momentous things, whether it's income taxes or a job review or a, a board meeting or a tribal uh, elders meeting, something going on where you're very focused on some big event. But Fulgham shares a story about an elder, if you will, in his life. It was his grandfather. And uh, this is late in the book, page 177, if if anyone's following along. He says uh, how his grandfather, Sam, called him up and wanted him, wanted Robert to take him to a football game. Now, this was not a professional game. This was a game where some, you know, kids, some no-name team was playing, uh, some high school students. And Robert mentions in that context, we have to find ways to celebrate the little things in life. And we so often overlook all the bad things that didn't happen, the accident that we didn't have, the things that went right, and we find it so easy to focus on the negatives. Well, Victor, our time is just about out. Any final thoughts about some of the life lessons we've uh, covered going through Robert Fulgham's book one more time? Well, really... um like you said, it's it's not taking uh, things too seriously. I mean, we have to take things seriously, but at the same time, we have to take time to enjoy ourselves, enjoy the little things, um, whether that be taking breaks from your studying, taking breaks from your work, spending time with family, with friends, um, just enjoying uh, life. Uh, all are important things that we need to, to focus on to better ourselves. That's clearly one of the things that comes out in Robert Fulgham's book, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, A Balanced Life. It can definitely give you better health physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Well, our time has slipped away. I'm Dr. David DeRose for all of us at American Indian Living, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Service.